Well, good morning. It's good to see you. And um, if you're new here or if you're new within the last three months, my name is Jake Clausen, and I'm actually the pastor here, the lead pastor. Now, you might hear people laughing, and that's largely in part because there's actually an inside joke with our staff, because I use that word actually a lot. So yes, I am actually the pastor, but I haven't been here. I haven't preached in almost three full months now. But I'll use that word far too much. When I'm really moved by the worship, I'll make statements to our worship team like, like that was actually good. <laughs> what I really mean is, no, it was exceptionally good. So I have to learn to reuse that word in its proper context. Um, yes, my name is Jake Clausen. I'm the pastor here, and I would like to take, before we get into the sermon this morning, just to take a few minutes to just help you understand what's happened the last several months so that you hear it from the horse's mouth himself, All right? And so um, in, in November, in December, I was, I, I've been feeling very weak and tired, and then in December, I got sick. And I just thought, you know, it was, oh, it's just the COVID, right? And the COVID's going to go, right? Um, but it didn't seem to leave. And it just kept sticking around. And I kept feeling worse and worse and worse. And finally, under the direction of my wife and our elders, um, they suggested that I go and see my doctor because I was at the point where um, even after meeting with my staff or the staff here at the church, I would just fall asleep. Um, my, my, my ability to even remember people's names that I'd known for years was gone. My, my peripheral vision was gone. All these things were happening, and I just felt completely exhausted. And so under their direction, I went and I met with my doctor and found out very, very quickly that I had high blood pressure, and I was full type 2 diabetic, which I had no idea, and I had something called iron overload. Now, that might be too much information, but that's just kind of how I roll. Um, but in that case, um, it was excessive enough that my doctor suggested an immediate medical leave. And so, um, again, talking to my wife and the elders, and they said, it starts today. And so I, I want to say thank you this morning to our elders, Henry DeWall, John Scorgi, and Will Ung. And if you have ever questioned the care that our elders have, not just for me, but for this church as a whole, I hope it's laid to rest because, my goodness, they have been so compassionate so overwhelmingly caring, both for me and our staff and for you as a church. I, I'm really grateful to them for that. Now, um, I am back in ministry, but under, under the elders' direction, it's limited. It's not full yet, but I'm, I'm excited and happy to be back in the pulpit today. Um, but the elders, um, in order to kind of limit and control what I do as we're observing and watching how I'm responding with my health. Um, I've put two women in charge, my wife and our office manager, Natalie. They are now my boss, right? So they tell me what I can and cannot do um, just to kind of 
keep me in check. And so they're doing a good job with that. And let me just say one more thing. I'm going to give a few more thanks here, but I want to say this. Um, as we got my health under the control since January, um, you know, I was like, I, I remember reaching out to the elders, I think it's about six weeks ago, and I'm like, I'm good to go. I've met, met the markers. The doctor wanted me to hit. Let's go. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just make sure you're really okay, right? And what I discovered from that time on was um, it wasn't just actually um, medical or physical issues that I was having, but the end result was the issues I, were, I was having were because of mental and emotional stress. Those were the two key elements that had caused all of this in my life. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're struggling with any of those things, there's a reason why we are so passionate and we're working towards establishing a soul care ministry here in our church under Cody Unger. It is so necessary and it begins with me. And so now was, those were the key issues that resulted or led to all of this. And so I'm not fully healed yet, but I am back on the mend. And so I want to give a few thanks here that this is very much necessary. First of all, to my wife and kids who have been exceptional uh, in caring for me in these last three months. And also our elders, Henry DeWall, John Scorgi, and Will Ong. I mean, you guys have just gone so far above and beyond of what was necessary and required, so thank you. Also, our staff, Pete Bergen, Natalie Patterson, Thomas Fisher, and Cody Unger. Again, all of these, as soon as they removed me, when I stepped out, um, within 45 minutes, there was, the plan was already put in place how things were going to move forward. And all of these people have stepped up and given so much more of themselves just to allow me the time to get better. So thank you to our staff in that regard as well. To all those who have preached in the last three months, John Scorgi, Ken Bennett, Thomas Fisher, Cody Unger, Jeremy Giesbrick, Scott Vanderform, Ian Havercroft, Andre Radoff. Boy, my goodness. Thank you. Thank you so much to all of you and also to you as a church. So many of you have told me that you're praying for me and have tried to do things for us in the last three months. And can I just say... Grace is uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable, especially when you get it lavished on you to such a degree. Um, but that's what God's grace is. And here's what I have learned in this season that I think is most important next to my health and so forth, the importance of a healthy church body around you. So if you're not part of a healthy church body, would you consider joining us as a church or a church that would fit your, your uh, direction? Get involved in a healthy church body. Surround yourself with people who love God and will be honest enough with you to tell you the truth. And so we just see the importance of the church body. So thank you to you as a body as well for praying and for all your care. Now, uh, with that, let me just... Give this over to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll t uh, turn our direction to the reason we're really here today. So let me just pray. Father, we just thank you, as we've already prayed for your goodness. Thank you for your grace towards me. Lord, grace is uncomfortable, but I pray, Lord, that everyone here would truly grasp the concept of grace, would truly grasp 
how your grace and your care is actually manifested through the body of Christ. And so I just pray, Lord, that we would all know that. We would all experience that and feel it, Lord, so that we would know your goodness. So now, Lord, would you help us turn our minds to your word and towards you? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark, or the Gospel according Mark. It's in the New Testament. It's the second book in the New Testament right after the Gospel according to Matthew. And as you're turning there, let me tell you of a story that happens in Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples are on their way to a town called Caesarea Philippi. And you know how it goes as you travel along. You have discussions with the people that you're with. You have conversation, right? Deep, often intimate conversation. You lay it all out. There's a lot of miles ahead of you, right? And so Jesus and his disciples are having these conversations. And Jesus all of a sudden poses a question to his disciples. And the question he poses is this. Who do they, meaning the public or general society, say that I am? Jesus wants to know who, who the public, what they think of him as, as to who he is. And so the disciples begin to answer, and they say to him, the first one is, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, which is really interesting because this, by this time, John the Baptist has already been put to death. But there's a rumor floating around that Jesus may be the resurrected John. And so some people believe that, hey, you are Jesus or John. Another answer they give is, well, some say that you're Elijah, which is also interesting because Elijah lived 870 years before Jesus, but there's a prophecy in Scripture that says that in the end times, Elijah will come again. And we'll learn more about that as we go through the Gospel of Mark. But then they give a little more ambiguous answer. They're saying, well, and just some say that you're, you're one of the prophets. So they're not sure who, but definitely a prophet. But then Jesus does something else. He now turns from looking outward and he turns to them and he asks this question. But who do you say that I am? See, it's easy to talk about what others think. But then all of a sudden when Jesus turns around and he now wants an answer from you about who you think he is. And Peter, of course, naturally is the one to give the answer, but Mark um, abbreviates the story for us and just gives us a concise form of the story and gives us Peter's simplified answer. And Peter answers and says, you are the Christ. Now, I tell you that story for this reason. I want you to remember that question as though Jesus were asking you, who do you say that I am? And I want you to remember that question as we go through the gospel of Mark. Because truth demands a response. And who will you say that Jesus is as the truth of who he is and what he has done will be presented to you? Now, hang on to that question 
And I want you to answer that question after today and every sermon moving forward through the Gospel of Mark. But let me just give you a few details because that's not the only question we're going to ask today. There's one more question. But let me just share a, a few things here with you. Mark, who wrote this gospel, was not one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Mark, also known as John Mark, is actually the cousin of a man we meet in the book of Acts by the name of, of uh, Barnabas. Barnabas is a real peacemaker. This man is awesome. This man builds bridges between people. He's the one who brought the apostle Paul into good standing with the other disciples and the apostles, right? Because they're all afraid of him. So he's this phenomenal man. And John Mark is his cousin. And Barnabas was actually one of the first men commissioned together with the apostle Paul as an evangelist or missionary. And so John Mark has had the opportunity to work with Barnabas for the cause of the gospel. He's worked with the Apostle Paul. And for a good length of time, he's worked with the Apostle Peter. And then finally, after all of this, he sits down and he writes the gospel according to Mark. Now, when Mark wrote this gospel, it's believed that he's in Rome. And he's writing this letter to Gentiles, or in other words, people who are not of Jewish origins or descent, right? And for that reason, he writes differently to them than you'll find that he abbreviates the whole message because he doesn't share the details that you'll see in, example, the Gospels according to Matthew or the Gospels according to Luke um, because those books were written specifically towards people of Jewish origin who understood Israel's history and relationship with God. Whereas the Gentiles didn't know all those details. And so he spares them in large part from it, right? And so that's why you don't, won't see the degree of details in the Gospel of Mark. Because he's writing to people who don't know, really know that history. He's writing to people who he wants to present Jesus to, so he gives them the Coles Notes version of what they need so that they can know who Jesus is. And that is why the Gospel of Mark is the single most translated book in the world because it was written for people who didn't have or didn't come from Jewish origins and didn't know the history um, of their relationship with God. So he shares with them what they need to know in order to know Jesus. And Mark's desire through this entire letter is for people, these Gentiles, to know who Jesus is. And he wants his readers to also answer the same question that Jesus answered or asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And that is the question we need to answer because truth demands a response. And who will you say that Jesus is? So if you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter one, let me open mine to Mark chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, and if there isn't one in the pew ahead of you, you'll find um, it up on the screen. And I just want to show you, um, we're just going to look at verse 1 this morning. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. 
And if you look at the verse, here is what we read. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's all I want to talk to you about today. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the first thing I want to do is I want to point out for us the relationship between the gospel and Jesus. Now, in order to do that, I'm going to step out of line a little bit, and I'm going to ask a question that I should actually be asking a little later, but I want to already plant it in your mind. So the overarching question that we're going to be asking for the next number of months is, who do you say that Jesus is? But the question I want us to answer today is, why is Jesus good news? So I've kind of let the cat out of the bag, but now let me show you how to get there. So I want to, again, like I said, point out the relationship between the gospel and Jesus Christ. I want you to note actually how it's simply written. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the gospel according to Jesus. See, the books that were written, like Matthew, is the gospel according to Matthew, about the gospel of Jesus. Mark is the, the, uh, the gospel according to Mark, of Jesus, right? It's about Jesus. In fact, the, Jesus is the very essence of the gospel. Therefore, we know that the word gospel simply means good news. And if the word gospel means good news, and it is the gospel of Jesus, we understand that what it is saying is that Jesus is good news, right? Now, let me just give you, share with you a little bit, um, a little thinking behind this here too. Um, we often, as Christians, think that the word gospel is unique to Christians only. But it's not. This word existed before Christianity came on the scene. In fact, it was a word often used among the Greeks and Romans because it simply means good news. Now, it's good news not in the way that it's used like, oh, the Raptors won last night, right? I mean, it's, it, that is good news, but the connotation of this word had more weight to it, right? Usually this word, this word gospel, when used among the Greeks and the Romans, was a declaration of good news from their king, and such good news that it usually resulted or, or was accompanied with a celebratory response from the people. So then the question is, if it is the good news of Jesus Christ, we need to find out why it's good news. Why is Jesus good news? And in order to find that out this morning, we're going to have to step back and actually take a 30,000-foot view over the scriptures as a whole. And notice how Mark starts with the words, in the beginning, right? In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we understand what he's talking about is when the gospel of Jesus was first initiated, right? When it came into effect. And so that's what he's talking about. But there's another time in scripture, um, several times, but I want to point back to another one where we read those words in the beginning. And that is all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, to the beginning of creation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And there we read this, and it should be up on the screen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, how do these two verses relate? 
Let me build the bridge for you this morning. In Genesis, when we read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We read about how God created the earth, the heavens and the earth, and everything in them within the first six days, including Adam and Eve. And we read about how Adam and Eve were working in the Garden of Eden, this tropical Shangri-La sort of place that was just perfect and beautiful in every way. And God ordered them to work the garden and to keep it. And we see the relationship between Adam and Eve. And we see the relationship with God and how Adam and Eve actually walked and talked and fellowshiped and communed with God as with a dear friend. And they were. And so often in the cool of the evening, they would walk with God and just talk with him. And after God has created everything, we read in Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he, cre- that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So in this beginning, the beginning of creation, the first six days, everything was very good. And Adam and Eve had this incredible relationship with God. They walked with him. They talked with him. But by the time we get to the gospel of Mark, something has changed. Something is different. Things are not like they were back in the beginning. Man is no longer walking with God. In fact, by the time we get to the gospel of Mark, corruption is over the face of the earth. And corruption has ruled and just brought destruction throughout everything. And we see evil throughout the world. So the question is, what happened? What happened from in the beginning in Genesis, when everything was very good, to the beginning of Mark, where we read in the beginning, and it's not that anymore? It's like two totally different worlds. What happened? Well, like Mark, I'm going to give you the Coles Notes version. In Genesis chapter 2, we read about a tree in the garden known as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17, we read, And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Listen carefully. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And as is recorded for us, we know the story. If you don't, let me share a little bit with you. Eve was deceived by that old sly serpent, the devil. And because he was deceived, she was deceived by him. She saw that the tree or the fruit of the tree was good, good for eating. And so she went ahead and she even told Adam, oh, no, look, he said it was actually good. So Eve, being deceived, went and ate. And Adam, Adam, who had been instructed by God not to eat from this, forgot his spine back home and went and ate freely from the tree. Right? So the problem here is not actually so much the woman, it's the man. Right? But here's what happened. And what we find out after they ate from this tree, 
that this act of Adam and Eve was an act of disobedience towards God. And the scriptures make it clear that disobedience towards God is sin. Now, the scriptures define sin as the transgression of the law or the standard of God. And in 1 John 3 and 4, we, it refers to sin as lawlessness. And so Adam and Eve's disobedience brought sin into the world, and holding hands with sin was death. And they came in together. And their relationship or man's relationship with God was severed. Now, we hear the story and we think, oh, Adam and Eve, you ruined it for all of us. But let's hold on there a minute. This was not a unique act by Adam and Eve. Yes, it was the first time. But do you realize that had you and I been in the garden, that sooner or later we would have made the same decision? We would have. How can you say that? How do you know that? Well, Isaiah 53 verse 6 tells us this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You see, God says, do this. I say, no, I'm going to do that. God says, walk this way. I say, no, I'm walking that way. We love that old song, I did it my way. Right? And that's, a, that's an anthem to our own selves, how we are sufficient in and of ourselves when the reality is we're not and it is sin. And so we prove over and over again that we would make the same decision that Adam and Eve made. Furthermore, in Romans chapter 3, the second half of verse 9 through 12, we read this. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. That means inwardly we are not sinless, perfect, holy beings. We're not. In fact, verse 11, no one understands. Now he deepens this and he offends us by saying, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. They have become worthless and no one does good, not even one. We hear that and we're like, oh, right? We're insulted. We're offended by that. Does he know who I am? He's just painting everybody with the same brush. That's right. He is, because if you understand human nature, you know it to be true. If you spend any time disconnecting from all social media and forcing yourself to think through humanity's condition, the ultimate conclusion is that this is right. This is true. We've all turned our own way. No one is righteous inwardly. We are not righteous like God. And we actually don't understand. And the truth is, if it were not for God pulling us in and calling us, the reality is on our own, we don't seek for God. 
We actually prove over and over again that we do not want to have God ruling over us. God says, here's my beautiful, holy way of life. And you're like, no, I want it this way. We do that over and over. You might say, no, I don't do that. Oh, really? God says, be angry and sin not. What happens when you get angry and you lose your cool, right? You blow your lid. What happens? Oh, no, I didn't sin. Yes, you did. As soon as you lost your cool, you sinned, right? And, and we have tons of examples of that just show our sinfulness, and we've become worthless. And in fact, that's the definition of sin. We were created for a specific purpose, but when we become disobedient, we, we've actually become so destroyed, so fallen that we're no longer good for the intended purpose. That's what sin is, no, meaning no longer useful for its intended purpose. That is what we're like without God. Now, that opens another whole can of worms we can talk about, but that's for another day. But the truth is, no one does good, not even one. Oh, we do a degree of good, but we don't do good to the degree that God is good, right? And since we see, since this fall of man, since the first act of disobedience and then it's compounded by humanity's acts of disobedience, including ours, what we see is that corruption has ruled the earth. From that day. And we see that we don't like God's standard of truth. That's why we keep creating and inventing our own. Right? We don't like God's standard of morality, so we create our own. That's why we now use terms such as your truth and my truth. Folks, there is only one truth, and that is God's truth. And throughout history, it keeps proving itself to be true, right? Over and over again. And because of Adam and Eve and because of all of us, sin and death have ruled creation ever since. But like I said, it's not just out there. It's not just out there. It's, it's in here. You realize it's within each and every one of us, even here this morning. The truth is that we prove over and over again that we cannot live by the righteous standards that God has set forth. And what's more, we prove by the things we do and the things we say and the things we pursue that we don't want God to rule over us because we want things our way. And anything we do, I want us to remember this, that is contrary to the righteousness of God is sin. Now listen, listen, this, it just gets worse from here. That this is why the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And some might say, what's the big deal with that? What's the big deal if we don't perfectly or always obey God? Well, first of all, I would try to answer it this way, and there's many different ways to the same answer. No, but when we look according to scripture, but for example, Psalms 11 verse 7 says this, the Lord is righteous. That means in everything God does, he is right. Not arrogantly right. He's just true. God cares about righteousness. He is, he is the very essence of what's right, right? So the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, right? Righteous deeds never hurt anyone. 
They only bless, right? Unless, well, we'll get to that in a minute. It goes on and tells us, the upright shall behold his face. Okay, so we learn that God is righteous and he likes righteousness. He likes things done righteously. But the problem is you and I are unrighteous. And the reason we are unrighteous is because we have sin dwelling within us, right? And you might ask, well, why is that a big deal? Who cares? I'll give you a simple answer. We all, from time to time, might say that. We might say, you know, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect anyone else. Listen, we all think it's not a big deal until it affects us. When we experience unrighteousness, right, then what do we want? Justice. That's what we want, right? We want righteousness to prevail. I've been hurt. I've been sinned against. I've been done wrong. Somebody needs to defend me. Someone needs to bring about justice. And God loves righteousness. Therefore, God is a just judge. Right, And that's why we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness who suppress the truth or who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's pretty... pretty hardcore there, isn't it? And it should be because God is righteous. Because God is righteous, he must punish sin. Because if he didn't, then he would not be righteous. Right? It's a very simple logic, very simple truth. The truth is we actually don't want justice. We want justice when we've been hurt or offended. Right? But we don't want justice when we're the offender. But here's the truth. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we are all under the righteous wrath of God. Now, that puts us in quite a predicament, doesn't it? See, we're all fallen human beings. We're all sinful. And here's the thing. There is nothing pure enough. There is nothing good enough that we can offer God to sufficiently satisfy the wrath of God, because God is just and he's righteous. Some might say, well, what if I just clean up my conduct? I'll just, I'll stop doing these things and I'll tell God I'm sorry, right? I won't do those things anymore. Isn't that enough? The answer is no, it's not enough. Nothing we can do satisfies the wrath of God. Justice must prevail. And anything we try to offer God falls short because it does not attain to God's glory. It's because we're tainted with sin and anything we offer God has been tainted with sin. My goodness, does that not leave us in a predicament, right? That leaves us in a terrible place where we are cursed. That's what we are. We're cursed because of our own sin, right? Where does our help come from? Before we answer that, here's the thing. The proper conclusion, when you follow it to its logical conclusion, is this. That there simply is nothing, 
nothing you and I can do to satisfy the wrath of God that we have earned and deserve. And then we come back to the gospel of Mark, and this is why. Mark starts his gospel the way he does, and that's why it is so amazing. In the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, well, gospel means good news. So what's the good news here? Well, Jesus is the good news. The good news is that Jesus is the Christ or the Christ. Christ is not his last name, right? Christ is his title. That's important for for us to make that distinguishment right there, right? So what does that word Christ mean? It means anointed one or chosen one. Well, for what? What was he anointed to do? What was he chosen for? And again, Mark will tell us in Jesus' own words in Mark chapter 10, 45, where Jesus says, for even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve. And what? We all know this if you've been a church-going person for any length of time. To give his life as a ransom for many. You see, here's why Jesus is good news. God knew our predicament. God knew that we were cursed. God knew there's nothing we can do to get ourselves out from underneath the wrath of God. So what did God himself do? God himself. In his righteousness, sent his own son, who is God himself, Jesus, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that's the good news. And it's the only way that we can come out from underneath the wrath of God and be brought back into that relationship with God that Adam and Eve had with him in the garden. And in fact, I would say even more fully so because they were unaware of the coming of Jesus Christ. We now see him and we see how we are reconciled to God. So let me answer this question. How is it then that through Jesus that we are forgiven? And the answer is that he came and he died on the cross. He laid down his life of his own accord for you to cover your sin. And we have the gospel. That's the good news. What you can't do for yourself, God sent God to bear the wrath of God so that you can be set free. That's the good news, and it's nothing we can do. And we have this summarized for us as to how this happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where it says, for our sake, that's you, that's me, for our sake, he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus Christ, his son, who knew no sin. He was not sinful, never committed a sin. He was sinless. He was pure and perfect. Made him who knew no sin. For what purpose? What does the verse tell us? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Another translation puts it this way, that he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The question is, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How does this happen? 
How does he who knew no sin, how was he made sin for us? And this is another great part of the story. A great part of the truth. You see, let me give you another verse. In Romans 6, verse 6, we read this. We know that our old self was crucified with him. When Jesus died on the cross, guess what? You were in Christ. And so listen, listen. Let me finish that verse. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So let me just bring this together here. Here's what happened. You see, God lives outside of the realm of time. We live in the realm of time. And so we see things as yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But for God, it's always now. Right? And so here's what happens. When by faith your eyes are opened and you see who Jesus Christ is, you know what happened? When you finally believe in Jesus Christ and what he did for you, God takes you, your sinful person, and he joins you with Jesus as one, like coffee and water, right, as one. So that when Jesus hung on the cross and died, that's how he became sin for us. Because by placing you into Jesus, he took our sins upon himself. But there's something else that happened when that transaction took place. His righteousness, all his perfection, all his sinfulness was imputed to us. That's the good news. That's the only way out from underneath the wrath of God. That's the only way for our sins to be forgiven was that we needed to become one with Jesus who then bore our sins and his righteousness imputed to us when we were joined to him. And so our death in Christ on the cross is the greatest news we could receive. You see, you don't need a better version of you. You need to die. There needs to be a new version of you. Yes. And that new version of you is when you're raised from, the, from death with Jesus and you now have Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the good news. That's the way out. And that now brings us back to our question at the beginning. That Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus to you? Remember the truth demands a response. And either you will bow before him and say you are Lord and Christ, the anointed, the chosen one to save me from the wrath of God. Or you will bow before him and you will recognize him as king of kings and lord of lords and your judge. Because he is righteous. And he must punish unrighteousness. Or else there is no justice. And by Jesus taking us and joining us to himself on the cross, we have the transaction of forgiveness 
we're reconciled to God again. In fact, he now adopts us as his own children, and he gives to us the gift of eternal life. And you know what eternal life is? Eternal life is God's very life. And God is eternal. God has no end. And so when you are united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, guess what? You know how you now have his life, meaning it's without end, right? When does eternal life end? It doesn't, right? Isn't that good news? That is great news, right? And now here's the thing. None of this is accomplished by our own efforts. None of it is by our own works. There is no degree of penance you can do to earn this. The only way for this to become real of you and for you is by faith. Trusting in and believing what Jesus Christ has done for you and that you are now united to him forever. It's by faith alone and Christ alone. And then we are his and he transforms us so that we become more like him in this lifetime. So let me ask you again, do you know who Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you believe him to be the Christ, the anointed chosen one to save you from the wrath of God and your sin? Here's the thing. There is only, when you think of it, of it this way, think of a storm. Um, the most secure, immovable object in a storm is a rock that is rooted deep in the earth and sticks out on the earth. It's immovable, right? And listen, Jesus Christ is that rock. He is immovable. Nothing can move him. And if you are in him, Nothing will be able to move you because you are in him. Oh, can I, just, can I just encourage you this morning? If you've never turned to Jesus Christ, would you call on him today? He's ready to receive you. He will turn, we're told in John chapter 6, he says that I will turn no one away that comes to me. So if you, will you come to him today? We'd love to pray with you after the service. If, if you want to know more about Jesus, if you want to give your life to him, you can pray right where you're at. Lord, I believe in Jesus. I believe in what he's done for me. I believe that all my sins and the wrath of God are satisfied in Jesus Christ. I believe that. And you will be his forever. Call on him today while he may still be found. And what you will find in him is as hard as this life is, his grace is sufficient for you and all that will come your way. Would you just pray with me this morning? Father, this morning, I just thank you for the opportunity to once again share the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, as we walk out here this morning, that we would have been affected deeply, that we would walk out here going, wow, what a great God, what a wonderful Savior, what love, what an immovable rock Jesus is. 
Lord, if there are people here today who have never known you, I pray that you would open their hearts and they would sense your drawing and your calling. That they would come forward that in spite of what this life brings towards them, in spite of their own sinfulness, their own waywardness, Lord, none of that, Lord. You, you, don't, you don't push any of us off because we're too bad. Because you bear all our sins on the cross. Oh, Lord, I just pray that we would see your splendor and your glory through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see your love in Jesus Christ and cause us to be drawn more towards you, to see your splendor and your glory. Cause us, Lord, for any of those who don't know you to come to you so that they might be saved, that they may know the true peace of God and that they may know the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. May they see the goodness of God. So after the service, if anyone like, I'd love to pray with you. Come on up. Um, we'd love to just do that with you. But Lord, you are so good. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that the beginning of the gospel is the turnaround of everything that went wrong in the book of Genesis. And all things are made new again. And all things are made right. And we are put back into that glorious relationship with you. May we all know that in Jesus' name. Amen.